Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. You'll find every episode of the show for free whenever you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. And don't forget to join the mailing list or the Facebook group. It's not really worth it to be on both uh, because I put the same thing on both places. But either go to thejazzsession.com and sign up for the mailing list by clicking on the mailing list link. Or if you're on Facebook, just type The Jazz Session into Facebook's search box and it'll pop up and you can join there. And each Monday you'll get an announcement of what's coming up on that week's shows and the next week's shows, and usually some other interesting links to things uh, in the jazz world, and from time to time, you'll get a chance to win free CDs. My guest today is composer and band leader Darcy James Argue, and uh, certainly one of the most talked about records of the year has been his album with his band Secret Society called Infernal Machines. This is how it begins. My guest is composer, arranger, band leader Darcy James Argue. He and his Secret Society have released a, a very acclaimed album called Infernal Machines, uh, and it's my pleasure to have Darcy on the show. Thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I really love that your uh, 
your online write-up for the the album talks about a steampunk attitude toward the traditional big band. Um, so, A, I'm kind of a fan of, of steampunk, and I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about what you think that that means uh, in the context of your your ensemble. Well, you know, the first question anyone asks you when they find out you have a band is, you know, what does your band sound like? And... Um, you know, especially if you have uh, an 18-piece band, uh, there's kind of an inherent curiosity. And um, if you if you say the word big band, though, that definitely conjures a certain type of uh, of, of association with a specific time and place where uh, big bands really ruled American popular music. And um, a lot of kind of um, contemporary jazz writers have a bit of an ambivalent relationship towards the big band tradition. And I, I guess I would consider myself somewhat in, in that group but the fact of the matter is there's um, y- you know there's only so much you can do to try to dispel that uh, image of you know the big band era in the 20s and 30s and dance bands playing in a ballroom um, as soon as you assemble you know uh, 13 horns and a rhythm section on stage it's going to have those associations regardless of of what you call the group whether you call it a jazz orchestra or a large ensemble or a big band people are going to look at it and say oh that's a big band um, and start thinking about Glenn Miller so I decided that really I I should just embrace that Um, and what I decided the reason I decided to call it a steampunk uh, big band is that steampunk is a, a literary movement that deals uh, heavily in sort of anachronisms and what ifs um the principal one being kind of like well what if the um the kind of external combustion engine and the victorian era uh steam technology continued well into the future so you had steam driven computers and uh you know steam driven automobiles and airplanes and and that kind of thing and and really taking that aesthetic of of how the the future looked to um writers like H.G. Uh, Wells and, and Jules Verne um, and kind of extrapolating from there. Uh, so for me, what was interesting was to, to go back and ask that same kind of what-if question with Big Band because you know the Big Band for about 10 years was the primary vehicle for American popular music. Uh, pretty much everything you heard on the radio uh, had a big band behind it. You know, if there was a singer, uh, he or she would have a big band and, you know, there would be instrumental big band hits and not all of it was jazz. You know, some of it was great jazz, but some of it was just like jazzy, right? So, uh, and then after um, World War II, technology changed, culture changed, and the big bands fell out of favor. But uh, to me, the interesting question is, well, what would have happened if they hadn't um, fallen out of favor? What if, uh, you know, Elvis's son studio records had a big band on it? You know, what if uh, Dylan's uh, Highway 61 Revisited had a big band? You know, what if uh, David Bowie's Low had a big band on it? Like, what if that relationship to popular music had continued um, throughout uh, uh, history? And then what would, what would the big band look like today if it was still kind of in touch with uh, popular music and, and what would jazz look like if that ensemble had that kind of longevity and that continuing dialogue with uh, music outside of jazz so uh, I guess that's the long way around of explaining why um, I thought that the phrase steampunk big band kind of encapsulated that uh, idea of taking a, a very old school kind of instrumentation and um, applying uh, applying it to new music to see what happens. 
Darcy, can you give me some, uh, if it's possible, some some concrete examples of elements that you bring into your compositions and arrangements that uh, that kind of meld that anachronistic sense with uh, what you would sounds like you would characterize as more modern or current kind of musical styles? Well, um, just let me think about that for a second. Uh, are you asking sort of specifically like what? Uh, um, like what techniques I'm I'm borrowing from contemporary music, or are you asking on the other side, like what techniques I'm uh, borrowing from the big band tradition? Yeah, I I think I'm probably asking both. I mean, I have some. Uh, I don't want to give you my answers, but I have some thoughts in my head after having heard your album many times mm-hmm. of of ways in which you are doing the thing that it sounds like you're trying to do, which is both. You know, you you have a there's a certain uh, in many ways you're kind of confounding the traditional big band sound with. Uh, with modern things that you are that you're entering into the mix, and so I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious if you would just talk more about both sides sure. of that coin. Okay, um, well, as far as the the big band tradition goes, I mean that um, just through the instrumentation that's inescapable, and no matter what you really do in the in the composition and in the orchestration and whatnot to try to um, get away from that just by virtue of the instrumentation it's still going to have like some just sonically a a connection to um you know to duke ellington and count basie and thad jones and and other uh great big bands of of the past and you know i'm certainly inspired by uh, a lot of that uh and you know especially uh especially thad jones who's uh, been like a huge uh inspiration to me since I, w- I was 13 years old that was the first big band music that i i really kind of heard and, and responded to and uh um, really kind of like put the put the bug in my ear about uh, like how great this uh assemblage could sound but for me the real attraction of of having a a big band, which is a really unreasonable way to make music with the uh, number of hours of preparation it takes you um, to yield just a, a minute of music is is really unfavorable, um, not to mention this kind of organizational challenges and financial challenges of getting the band on the road. But what makes it uh, worthwhile for me is the uh, the kind of possibilities that arise when you've got that many people uh, in a room to try and, and write in a more... Um, uh, I guess textural way, and to bring in uh, a narrative element that that wouldn't be uh, a, that I think would feel a little bit contrived if you tried to do it in a, in a small group setting of having these sort of long form pieces that aren't on kind of a a cycle uh, that have like a, a long kind of start to finish narrative arc to them, um, as opposed to a sort of a short song that keeps repeating and repeating and repeating like like most small group jazz. Uh, and being able to to sort of uh, work on, I guess, a larger canvas in that way is something that that's really appealing, and, and for me also has kind of some obvious connections to um, 
the kind of production techniques that you would use in uh, in the recording studio. Uh, there was an article um, in the Wall Street Journal after Michael Jackson died. It was uh, one of the only articles I saw that actually dealt seriously with um, Michael Jackson's music. I mean, obviously, the, almost everything else is about kind of the soap opera aspects of his life, but this was actually a very detailed analysis of, of what he was up to at various stages of his careers. And uh, one of the insights the author brought in was um, what I, I thought would be, you know, a more widespread, a more widely known point that, like, Quincy Jones's arrangements for uh, Off the Wall and Thriller are coming right out of his big band arrangements. You know, he's taking exactly the same principles that he would use, you know, writing arrangements for the Basie band and applying them, you know, to a more sort of modern recording studio uh, concept or, you know, bringing in synthesizers to take the place of, of the trumpets in some cases. But it's still exactly that same way of thinking. Um, uh, you know, Quincy's background as a big band composer is what made him such a great record producer. And so I guess for, for me, like part of the, the, the excitement of writing for big band is to try and, you know, take some of those uh, techniques that I hear on, on like great records by bands like Tortoise or uh, the Dirty Projectors or uh, the New Pornographers or TV on the radio and try and, you know, create kind of an, an analog analog to them. In, uh, in writing for acoustic instruments. So it sounds like you, I mean, a question I think uh, you know, you, a lot of people might ask is why, if you're if you're trying to write in a you know modern music for current listeners, why would you choose to use the particular palette you have? And it sounds like your answer to that is um, it it is in fact using that palette in a modern way that is interesting to you about this project. Is that a fair statement? Exactly. Yeah, I I think that. Um, you know so much of of what's exciting about um you know a really well produced rock record is uh you know there there are elements of of you know sonic elements of of the way the snare drum has been recorded or like you know the way um the things come in and out in uh an almost barely perceptible way you have to listen really closely to to hear where things have been doubled or enhanced or or whatnot. And uh, when you have more musicians uh, in in a live setting, you can you can create some of those same kind of effects by like you know having like a cumulative weight of adding people to to lines or to, to like making very subtle changes to the orchestration of adding like an extra muted trumpet at a certain critical moment. And uh, so 
that that sort of way of thinking that on, on the one hand, you know, it, it seems like a very modern way of thinking of, um, you know, a very kind of production recording studio oriented uh, way of thinking. But it's also, you know, it's something that, that you would see in the great uh, big band uh, arrangements of you know works by Gil Evans or Duke Ellington or Billy Strayhorn. You know they were using exactly those same kind of uh, techniques of being like very strategic about where they would introduce a new sound. So for me, it's really one long uh, continuum. And I don't I don't see this uh, kind of hard and fast break between you know the old fashioned big band sound and I guess the more contemporary music that I that I'm trying to make. Um, you know, I I try to be inspired by by everything, and I try. You know, for me, it's more interesting to try and make connections between disparate music than it is to try and uh, I guess build up uh, walls and say, well, this is you know this is specific to this genre or this sound is specific to that genre. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because I, I feel like there's some shaky ground about this conversation, and that I'm not really even sure what the word modern means in this mm-hmm. situation. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure what I mean when I use it. If I'm talking about technology, if I'm talking about some sort of uh, musical sensibility, if I'm talking about the way we approach song forms, um, is there a way that, that you mean it when you use the word modern in these sentences? I think what I mean by, um, what I mean by modern would be just that it has um, kind of a, a sensibility that that resonates with um a contemporary listener that it, it feels something that feels like it belongs to uh, this moment as opposed to something that that feels like it belongs to a previous uh, era and you know that that's a very ephemeral thing and it's a very difficult to define thing and you know you could you could like um, get more analytical about it and point to sort of um, specific rhythmic techniques, for instance, or specific formal techniques or ways of um, shaping music or harmonic techniques or all of these things. But really, the what, what's of most concern to me when um, I go out to, to hear music is I, I like to hear music that sounds like it belongs to today. And... Um, I don't know that I could make you a, a menu of things that that would signal that to me. It, it, it you know, there's probably any number of ways of signaling it, but I I like to have the sense that the music that that I'm listening to is uh, music that is is specifically meaningful for this time and place. <laughs> so that's so funny because. Uh... I just I recently had a conversation uh, with the pianist Eldar about um, his new record, and uh, he said almost exactly, I mean, almost to the word, exactly that same phrase about wanting to hear music that sounds like it is of this time and place, music like that sounds that that it's relevant to today. Mm-hmm. And when I when I asked him what um, he meant by that, we ended up having a fairly long conversation about it. But when I asked him what what he thought on his record made it sound like it was from today. I found that that was a very hard thing to pin down, and some of that is because of the whole talking about music thing, and it's just, you know, you should listen to it instead. But um, is there are there things you can point to, either in your compositions or in the sound of your record or the way you're using the instruments, that to you suggest, like, here's a way in which I'm making this sound of today, relevant to my time? Well, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of... Um you know elements that that kind of give that that signal and um you know whether it's it's sort of the rhythmic approach like there's a lot of i think you know um 
listeners uh, who who pick up uh, uh, my album Infernal Machines and, and play it from the beginning, kind of in the in that old fashioned way that that you do. Uh, might be surprised that the the first sounds that they hear uh, on the record are um, pretty difficult to identify exactly what it is. Um, it, you know, it, it sounds kind of electronic, and, and what it is, it's um, uh, it's actually a uh, our drummer John Mukan playing um, a cajon, which is a Peruvian uh, folkloric instrument. It's basically a box with a snare in it, uh, a very old kind of very rustic instrument. But we've taken it and um, you know, like really applied some pretty drastic electronic effects to it to give it that uh, otherworldly sound, and um, that was a that was a deliberate choice. That was trying to like signal from the very beginning of the record that uh, first off it wasn't going to be a, a a standard jazz big band record, and and if that's what you were expecting, then you need to adjust your expectations. But also um, trying to combine. Uh, something very earthy and uh, rustic and and very old I mean the the cajon is you know God knows how how many centuries old it is at this point um, but really combining that with uh, modern studio technology and the the kind of uh, uh, electronic sculpting of the sound that you can do with uh, you know uh, modern recording equipment so you know I think from the very beginning we were really trying to um, send that 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 signal of of trying to combine um you know the the earthiness and um uh i guess human element of acoustic instruments and um the the big band tradition such as such as it is uh trying to combine that with um uh a more uh i guess deliberately sculpted approach to uh the recording and to the compositions and to um, you know the, the 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 grooves and the rhythms and um, just the you know the the treatment of the electric guitar and all of these sonic elements kind of combining uh, in a way that that hopefully doesn't feel like um, like something retrograde you know like I, I definitely didn't want this to be in any way a, a, a nostalgic record um, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 34 and, uh, a lot of my peers are, are weirdly nostalgic for, um, the, you know, for the eighties and the music, uh, you know, their teenage years. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of, of stuff that I hear, um, you know, on the indie rock side that, that feels very retro right now. And, uh, I, I definitely didn't want that. I feel like there's there's already too much of a retro sensibility in jazz as it is, and uh, you know if I'm if I'm going to be recording right now, I want to do something that that's you know very much looking ahead, and um, I wanted to do everything I could to signal that.
I'd like to. Uh, I, I do want to come back to the music itself, but I want to step away from it for a second. But to stay on that theme of looking ahead and talk about your very uh, smart use of social media, which you've been doing for a long time now, and it's, you you seem like you were kind of an early adopter. Um, and I'm by this I'm talking about you know the MySpace and Twitter and that kind of thing for. Um, and uh, not only did you, not only have you been using it since the album has existed. But it it strikes me that a lot of the uh, kind of anticipation and now subsequent uh, you know kind of acclaim and uh, interest in the record you helped generate yourself by using social media smartly. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the way you use it and how much of that was kind of an intentional building up to the record game plan? Well, uh, you know the really the the primary uh, hub of of all the online uh, activity was this uh, blog. That I started back in, in 2005, um, which is uh, secretsociety.typepad.com. And um, uh, I mean, I originally started it because I just needed a kind of a quick and dirty website that I could put up right away. Um, and I, I wasn't all that versed in uh, HTML, and uh, but I was kind of familiar with, with blogs having, you know, uh, followed a lot of political blogs, and my girlfriend uh, was a blogger at that point, so I, I knew that I, I could, you know, very quickly create a home for our our music and uh, upload MP3s from our live shows and let people know what was going on. Um, and it kind of really grew organically. I really didn't have any kind of grand uh, strategy. Uh, I just started. Um, writing about um, not just our music but uh, other shows that I happen to be going to because there's a lot of great music happening in New York that that's uh, almost entirely under the radar and uh, doesn't really get reviewed or, or talked about by anyone and so I figured well um, I you know uh, that I, I could take some small step to try and, and rectify that a little bit and if I if I saw like a really killing show happening um, you know, at a, at a little New York venue that that I could write about it the next day, and um, since then, uh, you know, the the jazz blogosphere it feels like it's really finally beginning to take off a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, at, at the time, like back in in two thousand and five, there really weren't hardly any jazz blogs at all, uh, especially compared to the, um, the the indie rock world where. Um, Blogs were uh, at that point becoming incredibly influential and in launching the careers of all of these artists. And there would be, you know, there would be shows, um, you know, at the uh, Mercury Lounge with maybe twenty people in the audience. But someone would blog about it, and then, then the next day, the uh, the the entire indie rock blogosphere would be a buzz about this one particular show. And uh, it that just seemed like. Um, a really positive model for for the jazz world, but there wasn't really anyone doing that. And to to a certain extent, it's still very much in its um, embryonic phases uh, compared to to what's going on with with other genres. Um, and uh, I, I think the the fact that that I uh, was writing um, regularly about other people's music certainly, uh, I mean, as I said, it wasn't any kind of deliberate strategy but it ended up putting me on the radar of um you know critics and and writers and whatnot who would would sort of tune in to see what I had written about uh some of the shows that I'd seen and um so I it certainly uh helped uh 
you know, raise awareness for for the group just that way because people started reading what I was uh, saying about um, other shows and then uh, eventually became curious. Well, you know, I wonder what this guy's music sounds like. Um, you know, I wonder if you can back up what he's saying. Uh, I think was probably the attitude uh, in a lot of quarters. And uh, I just I, the other thing is it, it really. Um, it seemed like an excellent way to try to uh, communicate with people and to try and uh, talk a little bit about like what I what I value in music and uh, you know what I'm what I respond to myself what what I'm trying to pursue and uh, uh, what what the vision for the band is and uh, you know I've been really uh, just uh, incredibly um, still kind of stunned by by the response online you know it's easy to forget how new all of this technology is like just back in the in the 90s uh when Jeremy Klein's band uh was playing at at Smalls and he didn't have any recordings out uh this was a big band that was um you know legendary in New York and kind of um in underground jazz circles everyone everyone knew about it everyone was buzzing about it but unless you were actually in the club there was no way to hear it so from our very first recording uh, from our very first gig, I, I just recorded everything that we played, and then I would I would put it up online, like warts and all. And you know, some of our early gigs are, are pretty rough, but uh, I just felt it was it was important to try and document and put it out there and um, let people kind of hear it, warts and all. What happened? What ended up happening was that people from all over the world could hear this like underground big band thing that I was up to in New York. Whereas, as I said, you know, with you know, just 10 years earlier, that would have been completely impossible. So um, in a lot of ways, this this new um, era of the music industry it is very scary to a lot of people. You know, no one's uh, no one's really figured out how to make any money and, and you know, labels are, are shuttering and uh, uh, tour budgets are constricting and festivals are closing down and venues are closing down. So there's all of these negative aspects to it. But, um, you know, I, one of the those you know you really have to uh balance that uh with uh a view of how incredibly positive uh the the opportunities for music to be heard um that never existed before that now um everyone takes for granted and so it's really easy for uh, for anyone anywhere in the world to keep up with like the very latest in in what's happening um, anywhere, not just in New York, but like in in the UK or uh, in Berlin or or really anywhere. There's uh, so much music, so much more music available, and it doesn't depend on having the kind of gatekeepers that it used to have. And so, like, just the opportunity to have your music get out there and have it be um, heard directly by so many people uh, is really exciting and thrilling. Still, I mean, uh, I guess. Some people maybe take that for granted at this point, but I'm still like astounded and, and uh, like kind of blown away by the the opportunity to to get the music out there in such a wide way with so little effort on my part. Yeah, I, I really couldn't agree more. Uh, and and the, the opportunity to participate in uh, the live experience when you can't actually be there. I, like later tonight, I'm going to watch Reza Bassi play. At Smalls, and I'm right. in Albany, 
<laughs> right now, you yeah. know, and I'll be on my couch, you know, while I'm while I'm taking part in that, and uh, and I've I've seen a lot of concerts that way. I mean, I travel to New York as often as I can, uh, but you know, I have a life here where I am too, and I I can't always get there. So it's it's really uh, it's been very very exciting and and really rewarding to kind of feel like uh, you know at least through electronic media, I'm able to you know stay more in touch with the scene than I could you know even two or three years ago, uh, you know, let alone ten years ago. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, you mentioned one name, and I'm going to mention another and ask you about both of these people. You mentioned Thad Jones, and I was going to ask you about Bob uh, Brookmeyer. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you, you mentioned how inspiring you found uh, Thad's music, and so I'd be interested in hearing uh, what inspired you about Thad, and also uh, you know, what, uh, if any, effects uh, you know, your study with, with Bob Brookmeyer has had on what you're doing nowadays. Well, Thad Jones, I, I first discovered when I was uh, 13 and um, playing trumpet in the junior high jazz band, and uh, we we were playing a drastically simplified version of this um, Thad Jones uh, kind of, I guess you would call it now a, a fusion chart called Us, and um, it it has uh, it has this brass chorale with harmonies in it that that I'd never really heard before like all of these like really sort of very thick um brass chords and you know like playing the fourth trumpet part you're playing all these intervals that that you don't normally play in these junior high jazz charts so um i uh, you know I, I thought this was really cool and then, and then our band director you know suggested well why don't you why don't you check out the original recording we got it on on vinyl in in the library and then when i heard that uh it's like a whole world opened up it's like wow you know, that's how it's supposed to sound. And, um, you know, I, I think 
you know, I, I that really planted the, the seed in, in terms of me being excited by by big band and later um, there was a, a, a mosaic box set that came out with sort of the complete um, Thad Jones Mel Lewis from uh, about 66 when they started the band to to about 1970 and uh, it was just an absolute treasure trove of, of invention and um, what I really love about uh, about that band I mean there's there's so many things Thad's writing is incredibly uh, harmonically sophisticated and st- but still like really earthy and and fun and um, like He's got an incredible sense of, of just everything is balanced, everything is, is in its right place, and he'll have these like really crazy, highly chromatic uh, lines in the saxophones weaving in and out of these like incredibly dense uh, brass chords, but everything just works and uh, you know and it swings like hell. And uh, the the rhythm section I think is is something that also made a, a really big impact on me hearing. Um, Mel Lewis and, and Richard Davis and just the way they would play together, um, you know. Later, I sort of realized that that what they were doing was very non-standard for a big band rhythm section. But you know, I never really heard any big band recordings before, so I just kind of assumed that that that's how it went. Uh, and later, I, I realized that well, you know, part of the reason I think I gravitated towards that was this like real kind of loose, supple. Uh, uh, creative vibe between uh, those two players. They had this incredible hookup. They played together all the time. And you know, Richard Davis, the kind of stuff that he would play in that band would get him fired from any other big band. But um, you know, he he was able to to be incredibly creative within uh, an incredibly uh, structured format, which I just love. And uh, those are two guys who who could have played with anyone. I mean, uh, Mel. And, and Richard, they could have played behind Wayne Shorter, they could have played behind Ornette Coleman, they could have played behind Coltrane and be completely comfortable in, in those situations, which I don't think you could say about any other big band rhythm section of that time. Um, and of course, Bob Brookmeyer was part of that band, was writing some great arrangements for that band, and uh, the, the first one of those I, I heard um, live was uh, back, uh, I think, like 1994 at uh, an International Association for Jazz Education conference when uh, Brookmeyer uh, was, uh, came over with the Danish radio big band and they played his arrangement of St. Louis Blues, which uh, still is, is one of those pieces that really sticks with me. But hearing it live for the first time made, it, made a, a, a really incredible impact. And uh, so years later, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to, to study with Bob at uh, New England Conservatory. And uh, you know, that uh, really had a, a profound experience on uh, becoming more serious about being a, a big band composer. That's, that's not something that I had ever really envisioned for myself. I, w- I was at that point more of a, a small group piano player. But um, when I studied with Bob, he, you know, it, he really uh, encouraged me to, to pursue uh, big band writing um, on a more regular and, and serious level. And uh, the, the kind of things that he would talk about would, would be uh, things that a lot, of, a lot of teachers don't talk about, and maybe they should, issues of uh, large-scale form and musical narrative and patience and the ability to uh, really extend uh, a, a single focused specific idea for an entire composition and to um, tell a story in music with time um, you know these are these are 
kind of the most important elements of, of, of music, you know, the, the little sort of details of orchestration and harmony and whatnot, they're, they're all important, but if they're not in the service of something larger and more meaningful, uh, of, a, of a larger musical structure that makes sense, then the, they really don't have any kind of emotional impact. And so, uh, you know, Bob was uh, instrumental in helping me kind of step back from what I was writing and uh, apprehend it from a listener's perspective instead of a composer's perspective all the time. You know, as a composer, it's very easy just to get lost in a sea of notes and to never take the time to step back and think about, like, you know, the pace at which you're introducing information and the kind of narrative and dramatic effect of what you've written. Uh, finally, does it uh, kind of on that topic? Does it help you to gain a listener's perspective because you don't play in your band? You stand out. Uh, I assume in front of it. I don't actually know where you stand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if it's not in front, correct me. But does it? Do you think? Uh, do you think not actually having to perform the music, but rather to be, uh, you know, guiding it? Does that make a difference in the way uh, you structure your music or the way uh, you think you perceive it? Well, I, yeah, I, I'm out front playing Traffic Cop um, because the the music definitely needs that, and it's um, it's also a way for me to to remain engaged in the performance of the music. You know, if if my uh, only contribution was writing the notes and then uh, you know just entrusting it to the band without a conductor or entrusting it to another conductor, um, I don't I don't know how I would feel about that. Uh, I know that that wouldn't be nearly as attractive to me as as like being an active participant in being able to shape the music in in real time with the way i'm um conducting it and with uh gestures and and just being able to sort of look over at someone to try and and, and communicate something just with the you know uh with eye contact or a gesture or or, or to try and draw something out of someone but um i you know to to answer your question Conducting is is um, probably even more uh, stressful and engaging and less conducive to big picture uh, apprehension than playing the music itself because so much depends on on me like being able to to like constantly you know bring people in with cues and um, like let people know about the form and try and shape things like I, the really the last thing on my mind as as I'm conducting is um, what does the music sound like um, there's there's just a lot more there are so many more jobs that I have to do in the moment that um, you know really hearing it as as a listener is um, is something that you really do have to hear it after the fact as a listener and kind of listening back to to a recording 
um, there's really no other way to, to, to do it or, or if someone else was conducting it, I guess. But, um, you know, as, as a conductor, you're, you're as, as engaged in, you know, as emotionally engaged and as sort of practically engaged in the music making as, as any of the people who are actually making sounds with their instruments. So uh, it, it, it really comes from um, stepping back after the fact and uh, kind of listening critically and being honest with yourself about um, how you're responding to the music that you've written. I mean, you know, you can never, um, you know, trying to trying to anticipate or trying to write in a way that's going to please a certain audience, you know, like that way madness lies. But I do think it's important for people to step back and um, listen to their own music, um, to, to try and listen to it as if they hadn't had a role in the production of it, to try and listen to it as objectively uh, as they can, and to try and and really get into that sense of like, well, okay, I hear a lot of music. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a, a writer and a performer, but I'm also a listener. So if I didn't make this, how would I respond to it? Like, what do I like? What do I not like? What's working? What's not working? And that's a very difficult and uh, often humbling thing to do. But uh, I think it, it's probably the most important thing that you can do as an artist is to try and get a better sense of how uh, how are you communicating. You know, I want to be as clear as possible with uh, my intentions to try and get uh, the ideas across to an audience. Like, I'm not trying to make things difficult or obscure or um, co needlessly complex. I'm trying to make everything as clear and, and transparent as possible. You know, instrumental music is difficult enough to listen to as it is without um, kind of trying to, to append um, needless uh, complexity or kind of elements that that are going to take away from or distract from whatever it is that that's the central idea of what you're trying to get across and so i you know a lot of my listing back comes from trying to strip things down to their most essential elements so that every gesture that i include in a piece is something that that's serving the narrative and serving to uh really uh, advance the um the the aesthetic goal of the piece my guest is Darcy James Argue. He and his secret society have an album called Infernal Machines. Uh, Darcy, I, I really like the album, and uh, I'm very happy that we got a chance to talk about it. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Jason. Uh, this was a lot of fun.
That's Darcy James Argue and his Secret Society from the album Infernal Machines. I'm Jason Crane, and you've been listening to The Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this program is available for free anytime you'd like to listen at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet, respectsextet.com. They're playing in January at Le Poisson Rouge. And if you visit respectsextet.com, you can find all the details. And Ethan Iverson of the Bad Plus is going to be opening for them. So uh, make sure you check that out. I'm 90% sure it's it's January 12th, but I think I said it wrong recently. So it, I'm almost positive it's January 12th. But in any case, go to the Respect Sextet website at respectsextet.com and get the details. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons license. Details about the license are available if you go to thejazzsession.com and just zip all the way down to the bottom of the page, and you'll see the license there. You can click on it. You know, uh, most importantly, though, I I thank you so much once again for being here. It's always a pleasure to have you listening, and I hope that you will run right out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye.